Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys. Section 26. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Untrodden Peaks and Unfrequented Valleys, A Midsummer Ramble Through the Dolomites, by Amelia B. Edwards. Chapter 10. Primero to Perdanzo, Part 3. Shall I ever forget that blazing afternoon when, gaitered, white-hatted, his garments buttoned all awry, and a striped silk umbrella under his arm, he escorted me to Signor Sartori's museum and apiary, or that evening when he came to call, and we entertained him on the landing, and he talked for two hours without stopping, about state education, the Darwin theory, the calculating machine, capital punishment, prehistoric man, the Atlantic cable, universal suffrage, positivism, the solar spectrum, the Alabama claims, the sources of the Nile, the Prussian military system, the liberty of the press, the Armstrong gun, the Suez Canal, the eruption of Vesuvius, and the rights of women. A kindly, benevolent, public-spirited old man, eager to promote something like culture and progress in his native town, and interested in all that stirs the great outer world beyond his ken to establish a more rapid system of postal communication, to get the wire brought over from Feltra, to improve the teaching in the Primero schools, and to found a local newspaper, these are among the dreams that he is striving to realize. The little teatro social, for Primero has its tiny amateur theater and corpse dramatique, is of his creation and under his management. The new road to Perdazzo would not have been put in hand, probably, for the next ten years, but for the energy with which he was continually agitating the question in Primero. "'Ecco, signore,' he said, unconsciously quoting the dying words of Gotha, "'what we want in our little valley is more light. Our people are not poor, but they dwell in the darkness of ignorance. We have schools for the children, it is true, but then what is to be done with their parents who regard geography as an invention of, con rispetta, the devil?' I think it was the same evening, when all the lamps were out in the little world of Primero had well-nigh dropped into its first down sleep, that we heard a delicious tenor, rich and sweet and powerful, ring out suddenly through the silence of the night. It began a little distance off, died away, came back again, then ceased close under our windows. The air was Verdi's, hackneyed and commonplace enough, but the voice was fresh and faultless, and belonged, as we learned next day, to young Bonetti, the second son of our landlady. He told us that his name was already entered on the books of the Conservatoire of Milan, and that he was to begin his vocal studies in November. It is said that so fine a voice has not been heard within the walls of the Academy for more than a quarter of a century. With regard to Signor Sartoris, just named, he seems to have raised apiculture to the dignity of a science. Self-taught, he has discovered how to regulate the productiveness of the race, and is said to be able, unhurt and unstung, to take in his hand and transfer from hive to hive the queen bee and her court. How far this may be true, I cannot say, but I saw his museum and his apiary, the former a collection of all the bees, beetles, butterflies, woods, minerals, and chemical products of the district, the other a ghetto of hives, one hundred and fifty in number, containing a population of several millions of bees, the whole packed into a tiny back garden less than an eighth of an acre in extent. His father and sisters show these things with pardonable pride, but Signor Sartoris no longer lives in Primero. 
though not yet thirty years of age, he has been appointed director of a government apiary at Milan, and is there developing his system with extraordinary success. And now we must say farewell to Primero and all its notabilities. We must say farewell and be going again, for there are yet many places to be seen and many miles to be traversed, and the pleasantest tours and the brightest summers cannot last for ever. So away we ride again one bright early morning, overwhelmed with good wishes and kind offices, presented by Signora Bonetti with a parting testimonial in the form of a big cake, so big that it can hardly be got into the basket. Our way lies by the new military road as far as it is yet completed, and along the Val Sismone, that great valley which descends from the northwest, running parallel with the Val Privitale, and divided from it by the range that ends with the Sima Simeta following almost the same course at first as the old road, and crossing the stream near Siror, where may yet be seen the entrance to the ancient silver mine, the new strata then strikes up in a series of bold zigzags, and is carried at a great height along the precipitous slopes bordering the west bank of the torrent. Up here all is silent, all is solitary. A couple of Austrian gendarmes, a little group of cantonniers at work upon the road, a tiny donkey staggering under a gigantic load of hay. These are all the living things we meet for hours. But the great mountains on the opposite side of the valley keep us solemn company during many a mile, a wonderful chain of dolomite peaks, less incredible in outline, perhaps, than those of the Val de Canali, but rising to a more uniformly lofty elevation. One by one we pass them in review. First comes the Sima Simeta, called by Mr. Gilbert the Procession Mountain, but to my thinking more like some strange petrified sea-monster, bristling all over with gigantic feelers. Next come the mighty leading towers of the Sas Mayor, then the Sima Simerla, so called from the Simerla woods below, the Sima Privatale, and the Sima di Bal, three names as yet not entered in the maps. Lastly, the vast perpendicular wall of the Pala di San Martino, which rises grander and steeper with every foot of the road, and seems to fill the scene. At length, however, we turn away from this great panorama, through a pine wood and across a green, undulating alp, all ablaze with gorgeous golden lilies, and so arrive at the tiny church and rambling hospice of San Martino. Arriving here, after four hours of easy riding, we pause to take half an hour's rest before attacking the Costonzella Pass. It is a large, dirty, ruinous place, once a monastery, then a feudal residence, now an inn and farmhouse combined. It was built somewhere about the middle of the eleventh century, while Edward the Confessor was yet reigning here in England, and when the bishops of Trent were lords of Primero. It was these spiritual rulers who erected the church, the monastery, and the hospice, and dedicated them to San Martino. Having ordered coffee, we are shown up into a big upper room at the end of a wilderness of passages. It has been a grand room once upon a time, perhaps the prior's own snuggery, perhaps a guest chamber for travellers of distinction. The walls and ceilings are all oak, panelled in sunken squares ornamented with bosses and richly carved. A carved shield charged with the Velsberg arms in faded gold and colors commemorate the time when the building had ceased to be a monastery and become a baronial residence. 
Old family portraits of dead and gone Veldsbergs hang all awry upon the walls and stand piled in corners, draped in cobwebs and loaded with the dust of years. Courtiers in flowing wigs, prelates in lace, doughty commanders in shining cuirasses. A certain Princess Canonicus in a religious dress, with long white hands that Van Dyck might almost have painted, must have been pretty in her day, if the old limner did not flatter her. These bygone lords and ladies, together with a curious old porcelain stove in blue and white delft, two squalid beds, a deal table, and four straw-bottomed chairs, are all the furniture the room contains. It ought to be a haunted chamber, and is the very place in which to lay the scene of a ghost story. The whole house, indeed, has a fine, murderous look about it, and is as solitary, forlorn, and medieval a place as any sensation novelist could desire for a mise-en-scene. The good road ends at San Martino, that is to say, it extends in an unfinished, impassable state for another two or three miles, but we strike straight up the cull by a wild glen and over a grassy slope thick with crimson alp-roses, till all at once we find ourselves on the summit of the pass, standing just below the base of the Simnon della Pala. The air up here is cold and rare. The pass rises to a height of 6,657 feet. The stupendous dolomite wall over our heads towers up to 11,000 feet, of which more than 3,000 feet are sheer, overhanging precipice. In form it is like a gigantic headstone with a pyramidical coping stone on the top. Terrific vertical fissures, which look as if ready to gape and fall apart at any moment, give a frightful appearance of insecurity to the whole mass. Not the Matterhorn itself, for all his cruel look and tragic story, impresses one with such a sense of danger, and a feeling of one's own smallness and helplessness, as the Simon de la Pala. Looking back from this elevation in the direction of Primero, we get a wonderful view of the Pala de San Martino, the Sas Mayor, and the summits of the Val de Canali. Beyond these the Pavillon and the Vete de Feltre, and beyond these again a vast troubled sea of pale blue and violet peaks, some of which encompass the lake of Garda, and some watch over the towers of Verona. And now the clouds, which for the last hour or two have been gathering at our heels, begin driving up the pass and scudding across the face of the great Dolomite. Soon all the lower summits are obscured, the vapors roll up in an angry masses, and the huge peaks now vanish, now look out fitfully in gloom and storm-cloud. Passing an unfinished building, presumably a new hospice, on the top of the pass, we emerge upon the Constanzella Alp. Here an entirely new panorama is unfolded before our eyes. The great prairie undulates away to a vast distance underfoot. To the north opens another sea of peaks terminating with the summits beyond Innsbruck. To the east lie wooded hills and rich pasturages. To the west a steep descent of apparently interminable pine forests bounded by a new range of dark, low, purple peaks streaked here and there with snow. The loftiest and nearest of these is the Monte Calricone. It needs no geological knowledge to see at once that these new mountains are not dolomite or that we are, in fact, entering upon the first outlying forfiris of Predasso. The path now turns abruptly to the left and plunges down through the steep pine forest. Somewhere among those green abysses, halfway between here and Predasso, lies the hospice of Paneveggio, 
where we are to dine and take our midday rest. On the verge of the dip we dismount, promising ourselves to walk so far and leaving the men and mules to follow. It is a grand forest. The primeval pines up here are of gigantic size, rising from eighty to over a hundred feet, enormous in girth, and garlanded with hoary gray-green moss, the growth of centuries. Except only on the pines close under the summit of the Vengern Alps on the Grindelwald side, I have never seen any so ancient and so majestic. As we descend they become smaller, and after the first five or six hundred feet dwindle to the average size. A fairly good path, cool and shady, carried down for a distance of more than fifteen hundred feet in a series of bold zigzags, and commanding here and there grand sweeping views of forest slope and valley, brings us at the end of two hours rapid walking to an open space of green pasture, in the midst of which are clustered a wee church, a pretty white hostelry, and a group of picturesque farm buildings. Steep hillsides of pine woods enclose this little nest on every side. There is a pleasant sound of running water, and a tinkling of cowbells on the air. The haymakers on the grassy slope behind the house are singing at their work, singing what sounds like an old German chorale in four parts. It is a delicious place, so peaceful, so pastoral, so clean, that we are almost tempted to change our plans, and stay here altogether till to-morrow. By and by, however, when the two hours have expired and the mules are brought round, we go on again, though regretfully. At this point we enter the Val Travignolo, here only a deep torrent-gorge between steep woods, but broadening out by and by into cornfields and pasture meadows rich in all kinds of wild lilies, orange and silver-white, and pinky turkscaps speckled with dull crimson. Thus always descending and overtaken every now and then by light showers, followed by bursts of fleeting sunshine, we arrive, at the end of nearly three more hours, inside of Predazzo, a widely scattered village in a green basin at the end of the valley. It looks like a prosperous place. The houses are large and substantial, with jutting Tyrolean eaves. Two church spires rise high above the clustered roofs. Farm buildings and Swiss-looking brown chalets are scattered over the green slopes that circle round the town, and, as we draw nearer, we find ourselves traversing an extensive suburb of sawmills and timber-yards, which here skirt both banks of the torrent. And now, following at the tail of a long procession of grave, cream-colored cows, all shod like horses with iron shoes, and carrying enormous bells about their necks, we make our entry into the town. The children run out into the road and shout at our approach. The elder folks come to their house-doors and stare in silence. The Austrian gendarme at the door of the guard-house lifts two fingers to the side of his cap in military fashion as we pass. Then emerging upon an open space of scattered houses surrounding the two churches, we find ourselves at the door of a large, old-fashioned, many-windowed inn, the very counterpart of the ancient stern at Innsbruck, over the arched entrance to which swings a gilded ship, the sign of the Nave d'Oro. End of section 26